Those people that we call fascists, we call them everything that's abominable in politics. Right-wingers storm government buildings in Brazil. Monday, January 9th, and this is Here and Now, Anytime, from NPR and WBUR Boston. I'm Chris Bentley. Today on the show, bike accidents are on the rise in many communities. We'll get some tips for staying safe. And we get an outlook for energy in 2023. But first, that was Brazil's president we heard a moment ago. Leftist Luis Inácio Lula da Silva defeated the right-wing incumbent Jair Bolsonaro. But over the weekend, Bolsonaro's supporters mounted their own version of the January 6th Capitol riot, storming government buildings in Brasilia. Ewan Marshall is editor of the Brazilian Report. He spoke earlier to Robin Young. Just briefly, what were some of the things you watched, probably in disbelief, uh, during Sunday's demonstrations? I mean, truly... Really quite shocking uh, for everyone watching this uh, unfolding in, in Brazil's capital. We saw hundreds, potentially even even thousands of people storming uh, the Brazil's Congress building, the Supreme Court headquarters and also the presidential palace. And now only today we're starting to see the real kind of results of what these people did while they were in there. I mean, we're just there's just broken glass everywhere. There's priceless artworks destroyed, uh, things that have been stolen uh, from... It's it's really quite quite, um, breathtaking, actually. Well, and I apologize to our listeners. We have a little bit of a delay and a little bit of a technical problem, but you are so worth it to us because you are an eyewitness, and we understand that more than 1,200 people have been arrested. Uh, where, Where are they? What's happened to them? Well, these people have been arrested in the capital and in a nearby protest camp, uh, which was quite a while ago, actually, outside the army barracks in Brasilia. And they, uh, on Sunday morning, they left the army barracks to march towards the Congress building. And after the riots and all these things that happened, they returned to these camps. Uh, and so the order then from the Supreme Court and from the police was to dismantle these camps and basically arrest anyone who was involved in the riots. Yeah, that that uh, figure of one thousand two hundred is, you know, that's a partial figure. We're expecting actually quite a lot more, um, but that just hasn't been updated yet. They are being held in Brasilia at the moment, so you know we'll see how that plays out. Well, uh, we know the Supreme Court has su- suspended the governor of that region because one of the justices is accusing the governor of abetting the riots. You know, there are questions about the security forces whether they did all they could to control this riot, but it does seem as if they certainly were uh, out to arrest people. Some would say many more than arrested on January sixth in this country. And as we said, you know, it's eerily similar. Um, uh, and we know there are other similarities. Jair Bolsonaro is currently in Florida. His son is reported to uh, be at Mar-a-Lago meeting with, uh, visiting with President Trump. Uh, he, Bolsonaro, Jair, the father, uh, contested the election's validity after he lost to this leftist opponent. And there are reports that he is being advised uh, by aides of former President Trump, uh, Steve Bannon and Jason Miller. Uh, what more can you tell us? And how are people in uh, Brazil reacting to those reports? The links with, as you mentioned there, Steve Bannon and Jason Miller. Um, there have been meetings between uh, Jair Bolsonaro's son, Eduardo Bolsonaro, 
uh, with Bannon and Miller. But you know, we don't obviously have any have any proof or direct indication at the moment that they were involved in this particular uh, incident. Although as Steve Bannon did post a video um, on his uh, on online today, suggesting that the people who had stormed the Congress building were Brazilian freedom fighters, so there's definitely a lot of attention um, from Bannon and Co on what's happening in uh, in Brazil. As far as the reaction in the country, it has been pretty widespread in terms of condemning um, the riots yesterday. It's just it's it, one of these things in Brazil that the, the 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 vast public just can't accept is vandalism and destruction of public property. It's really it's one of these kind of the, these kind of bipartisan issues. Could, could we say just like no one in Brazil likes it. Um, and it has it's been a real loss, I think, for these particular protesters. If they wanted to try and gain anything, um, potentially overturn an election yeah. result, it seems like it's very remote they're going to have any chance now. Ewan Marshall, editor of the Brazilian Report there in Brazil. Ewan, thank you so much. No. After the break, bike safety. It's an issue that's a big deal for a lot of us who bike in cities across the country including Scott Tong, who recently learned firsthand what can go wrong. Stick around. This next segment comes by way of a listener email, a very personal one. About three months ago, I was commuting home on my bike when a driver flung open his door in front of me and I swerved, lost control, crashed. Fast forward, five broken ribs, one very thankful recovery. At which point, a cycling instructor emailed me with tips on safe bike commuting in an article that says a bicyclist can prevent almost all traffic crashes. Rather timely. That instructor is John Schubert, an author, writer, and editor at the blog site Cycling Savvy. John Schubert, welcome. Hi, thanks, Scott. Well, thank you for uh, for writing in and for your suggestions. Let's talk about being doored, which for cyclists is a verb, unfortunately. Why is it so dangerous and how do we avoid it? Well, it's dangerous because you're flung to the ground. And if there is an overtaking motor vehicle, um, as a bonus, you get run over. But how would you know to stay out of the door zone when your city is full of paint telling you that it's a safe place to ride. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we are full of these these green painted bike lanes right next to these doors, right inside, w- within four feet, whatever the door zone is, of these vehicles. So what's your suggestion, whatever the paint says, to always steer clear of that door zone space? Ride as if the paint isn't there. You ride where it's safe. Where it is safe is well away from the door. You don't want to avoid the door zone by inches because then you're just going to flinch when you see a door because you don't know if you have enough inches. But if you're controlling the lane next to you, then all these great things happen. One is you get to ignore doors that fling open. The next thing is that if you're controlling a lane, don't be worried about motor traffic. They will change lanes to pass you or they will follow you. Admittedly, in some cities and some states, 
there are laws telling you to stay in the bike lane. If that's the case, and there's a door zone bike lane, I'd pick a different street. Hmm. But surely that's a bit of a different risk. Uh, I mean, being in the lane of traffic in my city, in Washington, D.C., cars will pass me within a couple inches or try to intimidate me. I mean, I feel like I'm taking a risk when I'm in the car lane. We have a saying. We say, ride big. If you ride on the far right, motorists will just not give very much space. They'll say, oh, I can sneak around him, you know, and they'll give you six inches. And that's pretty unnerving. We actually measured the farther out into the lane you ride, the more space motors give you when they overtake you. You're more visible to cross traffic as you approach intersections. Lane control is your friend. Hmm. And of course, John, there are other risks of you know slipping, falling down where there are no other vehicles. My commute into town has a switchback with a lot of leaves that get wet. There's a set of wooden planks that after it rains get really slippery. As far as those kind of risks, how do I reduce mine? First of all, you bring up a very important point. Most significant injuries to bicyclists do not involve a collision with a moving motor vehicle. Slip and fall type crashes or collisions with other bicyclists collisions with fixed objects, those are the majority of crashes that cause a trip to the hospital. So being aware, and uh, 10 or 12 miles an hour is plenty fast. If you're in shape and you want to go faster, you really need to be on an open road where you have better sight distances and a wider lane. And those wood planks you mentioned, they're really pretty. But yeah, there's a big problem with them being slippery. You know, a lot of cyclists think, Staying to the side of the roadway as far over to the right is safe because I'm just going to be away from the moving vehicles. Is it safe to hug the far right curb? Well, I got a long list of reasons why the uh, curb is not your friend. The hazards are almost all on the right. That's where you're going to find most of the potholes, most of the sand and gravel, most of the broken glass, most of the wet leaves, the water, and this time of year it might get frozen. So being away from that curb is what gets you relief from all these hazards. And when you learn how easy it is, all of a sudden cycling is transformed for you. It becomes much less stressful. Do you just mean if cyclists kind of incorporate what we've been talking about, uh, you know, notably staying out of the door zone and uh, kind of own, owning the lane and cycling in the in the safer part of the lane, that's the key to kind of delivering this enjoyment and this relief. That's what you mean? Absolutely. I'll get back to you <laughs> on, on that. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm looking forward to that relief. Uh, there's first the psychology of getting back on, which I'm going to do in a couple of days and then commuting again. And then if I get the relief, <laughs> um, great. That's John Schubert, writer, author, and editor at the Savvy Cyclist blog site. John, thanks uh, so much for taking the time. Um, safe cycling. I'll... I'll send you a note when I'm back on the road. <laughs> Thank you, Scott. Thanks for reaching out. Coming up next, global energy markets look a lot different in 2023 than most people would have predicted this time last year. 
more after the break. Russia's invasion of Ukraine upended the trade of oil and gas in Europe. And the ripple effects of that shift continue nearly a year after the war began. We called up a man whose name is synonymous with oil politics. Dan Jurgen is probably best known for his book, The Prize. More recently, he's author of The New Map, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations. And he surveyed that new map with Scott. So let's start with Ukraine, where we know the Russian invasion took the old map of world energy and kind of crumpled it up. Let's first talk about oil. How does that change where Russian oil goes? It's a dramatic change. Europe was Russia's main market for oil, and Putin counted on it and just assumed that that would continue. But the Europeans have banned the import of Russian oil. And led by the United States, there's also a price cap on Russian oil, which Putin never expected. And so Russian oil now is going to India, which never imported Russian oil before, and China primarily, and it's shut out of uh, what was its main market. And of course, there's natural gas, which is critical for heating in the world, notably in Europe this winter. Europe has turned its back on natural gas, at which point Moscow said, well, we didn't want to send it to you anyway. What is the emerging map of natural gas in the world? There, it's really dramatic because actually it was Putin who basically he laid out a strategy last June in which he said, you'll drive up the price of natural gas, create economic hardship, bring populist parties and social turmoil, and, uh, and left unsaid, break the coalition. He assumed that that would work because Europe was so dependent on Russian gas. But Europe has shown that it, with great difficulty and with economic pain, can do without. So Russian gas is no longer, most of Russian gas is no longer flowing to Europe. And indeed, now, something that would not have been imagined in January of 2022 is that uh, U.S. exports of U.S. liquefied natural gas have now become one of the foundations for European energy security. That is such a big change. Let me ask you, Dan Jurgen, about the consumer, say the petroleum car driver around the world. Longer term, what are the implications of all of this? Many analysts think oil prices will stay relatively high for a while. I think that what we've really seen is that prices are volatile. They go up and down. Prices are a lot lower than they were several months ago, than people expected them to be. Part of that is because of the Federal Reserve, which probably is having the biggest impact of anything on oil prices right now by slowing the U.S. economy and central banks slowing other economies. So I think for now we're in a period where oil prices are still higher than normal, but they're not what they were a few months ago when it looked very difficult. But there's a big wild card out there, and that wild card is called China, uh, because oil demand, global oil demand has been down, because Chinese oil demand has been down because of the, the COVID lockdown, and now the COVID chaos in China. China comes back, that could tighten the oil market again. But for right now, the picture, certainly for anybody who's filling up his or her tank, is a lot better than it seemed to be several months ago. Mm-hmm. But as you say, at least for now, still on the relatively higher side, for the energy transition away from fossil fuels, isn't this kind of what proponents want? That is, if oil in general gets more expensive, suddenly the alternatives get more economically competitive. 
I think that's true. I, I think even while we've had a return of energy security and a new focus on assuring that there's enough oil supply. After all, you have the Biden administration actually telling U.S. oil companies, could you produce more oil? At the same time, you have things like the Inflation Reduction Act, which are putting so much money into renewables and alternatives and hydrogen and carbon capture that that accelerates the energy transition, even at the same time as energy security looms larger than it did a year ago. Well, that brings us to talk a little bit more about China. In your book, you write about several new maps emerging in the world, the changing Middle East map and the changing China map. And assuming, as most people do, that China's influence will continue to grow through its alliances around the world, its Belt and Road Initiative, does that amplify everything China? That is, a China that still needs fossil fuels to bring hundreds of millions of people out of poverty, and also a China that is a world leader in solar, in batteries, in electric vehicles. Scott, what you've described is an all-of-the-above China. In its latest 14th five-year plan, it links energy security and low carbon together. And for China, growing energy demand is a very big issue. China imports 75% of its oil which they regard as a big security risk and part of the larger U.S.-China great power competition that I write about in the new map. But they've also, you know, half the wind, half the solar's there. And China has established a very predominant position in the supply chains for a low-carbon future, if you're talking about electric car batteries and so forth. And I think one other thing that people will be surprised about is that China has had his early commitment as Tesla to the electric car. And China now looks to compete in the electric car market around the world as an exporter. And I think that's been their strategy now for a number of years since they realized they couldn't compete with conventional cars, but with their position and their domestic market, the base of that, they can be very competitive in electric cars and cheap Chinese electric cars are already appearing in showrooms in Europe. Well, many analysts who think about these big questions say the energy transition is already happening. You think so as well, but I gather you think this transition may go more slowly than others are predicting or more slowly than others want. What are the limiting factors in your view? I think what gets left out of the discussion are the 80% of the people who live in the developing world who are in a very different position. For them, per capita incomes may be one twentieth of what it is in Europe or the United States, and they believe they need conventional energy. Best example is India. On the one hand, there's a huge commitment to renewables, a big commitment to hydrogen, but they're also building a $60 billion natural gas transmission system. And for people in the developing world to go from burning firewood to what's called liquid petroleum gas, that's their energy transition. So I think it's more complicated, and I think there is something of a north-south divide now. Yeah, so... You take all these complicated factors you write about in your book and these many maps that are changing. So let me ask you to project. I mean, you're in the projection business to some degree. (laughs) When do you think the world's use of oil will peak, unless we're already there? And when do you think the world's use of gas will peak? I think world oil demand will probably peak in the early 2030s and natural gas probably a decade after that. 
It's still going to take a lot of investment when that happens because every year oil fields decline by about 5%. So there's still a lot of investment that will be required. So when I look out, I see renewables having a much bigger share of a much bigger energy pie, but oil and gas being part of it. And that's what makes what's called carbon capture also an important part of the equation. And that's one of the things that the United Nations have emphasized in their reports that you're going to need carbon capture because mm. oil and gas will be part of the energy mix, just not as big a part. Yeah. And by that, uh, you mean these still emerging efforts as far as carbon capture to capture carbon emissions coming out of big smokestacks and finding a way to, to store it somewhere, stick it underground or uh, that kind of thing. And finally, Dan Jurgen, just on the issue of projecting and predicting, you're bold to be in that space. In your book, The Prize, the book uh, that came out in the early 90s, you predicted we will be an oil society much longer than we thought. How well do you think that prediction has aged? I would amend it to say that oil and gas will be part of the energy mix, but they'll be a less dominant part as we go forward. I think that's the change. That's Dan Jurgen, global energy analyst, a Pulitzer Prize-winning author, whose new book is The New Map, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations. Dan Jurgen, always a pleasure. Thanks so much. And thank you, Scott. This podcast comes from the team behind Here and Now from NPR and WBUR Boston. As always, there's more to explore on our website, hereandnow.org. Jill Schlesinger of Jill on Money has some tips on investing in a down market. And a recent discovery is reigniting debate on the origins of the Basque people and their language. What it does is it takes our idea of early languages and sometimes early civilizations as being this kind of caveman or kind of right early rudimentary language that are very simple. And it just dumps it on its head. To hear that conversation, head to hearandnow.org. Today's stories were produced by Hafsa Qureshi, Shirley Jihad, and Thomas Daniellian. Our editors today are Todd Munt, Gabe Bullard, and Kat Welch. Technical direction from Mike Moschetto and Caleb Green. Theme music by Mike Mee and Max Liebman. Our digital producers are Allison Hagen and Grace Griffin. The executive producer of Here and Now is Carlene Watson. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.